Let's pray and ask God for His help as we look in His Word. Father, we thank You that You are God who loves us, cares for us. You know us by name. You know us intimately. You know exactly what's on our mind right now. You know the struggles that we have. You know the victories that we uh, are, are, are graced with. You know the blessings that you put into our life and the challenges. And Father, we pray that today you'd meet us right where we are. And then that you would take us to that place that you want us to be. Thank you for our time together in Christ's name. Amen. So we're involved in this series that is taking us through the life of Jesus, and we're looking at all the passages of Scripture that teach us who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Our purpose in doing this is not to gain more knowledge about Jesus, but our purpose is to know Jesus more intimately, to follow Him more passionately, and to obey Him with all of our heart. That's what we want to do through this series. So take your Bibles and turn with me to John. Today we'll be looking specifically at John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Every gospel writer, every book of the Bible, every writer of Scripture had a purpose in writing the book. The gospel writers certainly had purposes. Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. Mark focuses on Jesus as the Son of God. Luke focuses on Jesus as the Son of Man. And John, who is often called the evangelist, focuses on Jesus as the Savior. When he writes his book, he tells us specifically the purpose in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John said, I picked these things out, these stories, could have had more, but I picked these stories out so that you can have life in the name of Jesus Christ. Before John gets into all the stories, he starts in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, with his prologue, his introduction to his book. And in that introduction, we have the most complete description of who Jesus is the most complete description, description found anywhere else in Scripture. And so I've wanted us, as we go through this series, to let that, let that passage wash over us, our minds and our heart, and we want to read it responsibly before we look today at verses 10 through 13. We're going to read this responsibly, and um, I'm going to be the leader, and you're going to be the all, and as soon as all pops up, it is your turn at whatever campus you are at. And uh, just a housekeeping, if you guys will set the clock for me back there. Uh, it's at zero right now, and I know I'm not finished yet. Uh, and I don't want to go till like 1.30. So uh, if you'll set it, I'd appreciate that. All right, here we go. You ready? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, and that through, so that through him all men might believe. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. John says, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, in one sense, Jesus was always in the world. He is eternal. He is equal to God. He is God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. He possesses all the characteristics of God, one of those characteristics being his omnipresence. He is everywhere at the same time in his full being. He created all things. And Colossians says, in him all things hold together. But now John adds a new twist to God's presence. Here in verse 10, John introduces what we call the incarnation. The word became flesh. The eternal God came into the world. Now, if you study Scripture, you know that when you are looking at a verse and you see a word repeated, you want to see what that word's talking about. And in this passage, we're able to see how John uses the word world, Greek cosmos, in different ways. He uses it three times in this passage. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He starts out by saying Jesus was in the world. He was in the realm where human beings live. He starts out with the big picture of world. And through and though the world was made through him. Now he's talking about the world that God created. The earth, the air, the plants, all the things that we see. He was in the world, the sphere. He created the world, everything in it. And when he came into the world, now who's he talking about? people, right? The people, they didn't recognize him. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? The eternal God took on flesh. The eternal God who created the world came into it. The creator showed up and and for the most part, the people he had formed Breathing the air he had breathed, walking on the earth he had created, those people did not recognize him. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you think you would recognize Jesus had you been there when he walked on earth? Tanchilkin, who leads our men's ministry, has written this uh, great book, uh, Forged in Steel. It's a book on leadership. And he tells in here the first time he met. Art Rooney, who built the Pittsburgh Steelers. Art Rooney, the owner and 
and, and builder of this dynasty. Listen to this story. Before the draft of my rookie season, the Steelers brought me in with two other prospect, prospective draftees for physical examinations, wide receiver Nate Johnson and defensive back Ken Walton. After our exams, we were asked to wait in the Steelers' lobby in Three Rivers Stadium so we could meet with Chuck Knoll. The Super Bowl trophies were right there on display with a large mural of the Steelers-Oakland Raiders battle. The chief, Art Rooney, was in the lobby at the time wearing an old cardigan sweater that was misbuttoned. He was chewing on a cigar and began emptying ashtrays. He looked at us and said, Hello, young men. What are your names? Each of us introduced ourselves. Before the chief could identify himself, Johnson, one of the guys Tunch was with, said, So are you the janitor here? <laughs> Art Rooney just chuckled and said, I do a little bit of everything around here. I elbowed Johnson saying, Don't you know who that is? <laughs> That's what happened to Jesus when he came into the world. Here's the creator. Here's the builder. Here's the eternal God taking on flesh. And we looked at him and said, what do you do around here? There are two things in this passage we cannot miss. The first one is about man. The second one is about God. This passage clearly tells us that man in his sinfulness is blind to the things of God. You see, we think had we been there, we would have seen. Probably not. Left to ourself, unless God interrupts our life, unless God opens our eyes, unless God softens our heart, unless he, unless he breathes life into our dead heart, then we don't trust in Christ. And the people in that day didn't recognize God. Isaiah 1, 3 says this, the ox knows its master and the donkey its, own, its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's about man, but there's something even more amazing about this passage. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Writing 700 years before Jesus, we see that God, when he came to this earth, came in complete humility. Isaiah 53 verse 1 says this. Check this out. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then Isaiah describes Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Look at this. He had no majesty, beauty, or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Think of that. The eternal God, the God who inhabits the praises of his people, the God who, who, who put everything in order, the eternal God, when he took on flesh, clothed himself in a body devoid of beauty, devoid of majesty, there was nothing in his appearance that would draw a crowd. You know, sometimes we talk about a person and we say, man, when they stand up, there is a presence about them. There is something about them that attracts us 
to them. But when God sent his son to the earth, he said none of that. No beauty or majesty. Nothing in his appearance. And so we looked at him and said, what do you do around here? Look at verse 11. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Again, John in the grammar of this passage says some significant things. First of all, he came to his own. That word is in the neuter gender, which means land. He came to his own people. He came to his own land. He came to Israel. He was always supposed to come to Israel. Back in Micah, we're told that Bethlehem, the smallest of the clans, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. Israel, from the very beginning, it was the, it was the country, it was the nation through whom the Messiah would come. So he came to his own people. He came to his own land. But his own, here John puts own in the masculine gender, which means people. His own people, those around him, those who saw him, those who interacted with him, those who heard him. His own did not recognize him. Better, they did not accept him. They did not welcome him. You remember, as we looked at the life of Christ so many times Jesus goes in, the religious leaders are against him. Then he goes back into his hometown and he goes to the synagogue and he reads the passage that talks about the Messiah coming. And he says, today this passage is fulfilled. And they were so excited that one of their own was now the Messiah. You remember what they did? They took him to the edge of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. Even his own did not accept him. Even his own did not welcome him. And so it is today. Jesus walks among. We, we see the things that God does all around us. We cannot, if we open our eyes, we can't miss the things God is doing. But we either say coincidence or we did it ourselves or nature or whatever. And we look at God still today and say, hey, what do you do around here? But there's another part to this. And that takes in many of us whom whose eyes God has opened. Not blind anymore because God has worked in our heart. Yet, think of verse 12. To all who received him. What does it mean to receive him? John explains. To those who believed in his name. He gave the right to be children of God. Yet to all who received him, to all who welcomed him, to all who believed in his name. John loves the word believe. He uses it almost 80 times in his gospel. And he never uses it in the noun form. He always uses it in the verb form. Because believe is active. John wants us to know belief is not some intellectual thing. Yeah, I know Jesus lived, and, and you can just kind of whirl the, swirl the, the historical Jesus in your mind. John wants us to know that it's not just an emotional response. Yeah, I like come singing the songs, and I like the, I like the, I like the Christmas Eve part of Christmas. I like the Christmas part of Christianity, all the emotional warm stuff. John is saying belief is vol- volitional action. It is putting what you know and what you feel into action. You believe in Jesus Christ. John says, to those who believe in what? His name. Those who believe in his name. Now, in the Old Testament, 
and name was very significant. Our names are significant today, but even more so in the Old Testament. Sometimes today, when we want to name our kids something, we just you know, Google top five names or boys' names or top five girls' names, and we go from there, or it's a family name or something. But in the Old Testament, a name described who you were, your person. That's what we want to see when we see the word name. The completeness of a person, the characteristic of a person, the deeds of a person. It is the person in some total. And so remember, uh, Abram in the Old Testament Abram, the word Abram means exalted father. In the slang of the day, it meant big daddy or boss man. Abram. But when God chose Abram to lead his people, he changed his name, right, to Abraham. Father of many. Father of a multitude. From you will come a great nation. Remember Jacob? Jacob was grabbing on to his brother's heel when he was born. And Jacob means heel grabber or deceiver. And Jacob, throughout history, we can see if we can read about Jacob, he was a deceiver. But then God got a hold of his life. And remember they had that wrestling match in Genesis? And God said, I'm going to change your name. Your name's not Jacob anymore. What did he change it to? Israel, meaning God fighter or one who struggles with God. And so when the angel came to Mary, he said, his name shall be called what? Jesus. The Greek form of the Hebrew, Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so when we believe in the name of Jesus, we are believing in the Savior. We are believing in the one who came to die for our sins on the cross. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Here is a passage you got to get down. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. What does it mean to receive Christ? What does it mean to believe in His name? What, what happens when we trust in Christ? Look at verse 13. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins, you were dead, you are a spiritual corpse, you were blind, your heart was hardened. You couldn't reach out to God. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive. Who made you alive? God did. He opened your eyes. He softened your heart. God made you alive with Christ. Now, what does that mean? He made us alive. What does that mean? Paul wants us to know. Here's the first thing. He forgave all our sins. We came to him as a sinner, indebted. And he forgave all our sins. Here's how he did it. Look at verse 14. Having canceled the written code. The written code was a business term that meant a certificate of indebtedness written in the handwriting of the debtor. And so I am a debtor. I can't pay my debt. And so I take my writing utensil in my hand and I write on a piece of paper my name, 
I am a debtor. I can't pay my debt. I am in debt to you. It is a certificate of indebtedness written by me. And so God takes that. And so we do that to God, right? When we come to him, I am a sinner. Can't save myself. Here are my sins. I cannot do anything about this. Look what he does. Having canceled the written code with its regulations, that was, that was against us and stood opposed us. He took it away. How did he do that? Nailing it to the cross. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. So he takes our written code, right, that we've written. I'm a sinner. I can't say myself. He takes it from us, and he walks over, and he nails it to the cross, and there it hangs with Jesus who dies for our sin on the cross. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. What a beautiful picture of what God has done for us at salvation. Not finished. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. This is a word that talks about the, the military, a military a conquer, a military victory. And so you're, you send your army out, they defeat uh, the other country, they bring that country back in to you. You walk on the road leading into your town, and everyone there in the, in the, at the victory parade, all the people are, are, are there the, watching this victory and walking down the middle of the street that as a public spectacle is the army you've defeated. They are stripped of their armor. They are stripped of their weapons. They are completely defeated. And God said, that's what I've done with your sin. That's what I've done with the enemy. I have made him a public spectacle on the cross. There I defeated Satan. There I defeated death. There I defeated sin. And now you can live forever. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's why the cross is central to our faith. That's where our sins are forgiven. That's where the enemy is defeated. That's what I, the work of the cross is what I trust in as Jesus came and died there for me. And he took my sins and he nailed it to the cross and he paid the penalty there once and for all. And John says, look, back in John, to all who believed in him, he gave the right, he gave the authority. That word means delegated authority. The, only one person can delegate, right? The source. And so God, the source, has delegated us the right, the authority to be children of God. Children of God. Just in case we have any mistake about, we have any uh, confusion about what it means to be a child of God, John says in verse 13, children born not of natural descent, and he's speaking specifically to the Jew this time, it's not because you're a child of Abraham that you can say you're a child of God. In another passage, he said, I can have these stones raised, raised up to be children of Abraham. Or a human decision. It's not about you making a specific decision or a husband's will. It's not about determination. Those things do not make us children of God. But the only way we can be a child of God is to what? Be born of God. Children of God have been born of God. Children of God have been born 
of God. Today, there are a lot of people, Christian circles, who focus on our brokenness. In fact, in the stuff I'm reading and listening to and seeing, brokenness has become this buzzword. You're relating to everyone when you talk about how broken you are. And we are certainly broken. I've heard many testimonies from people who spend all their time talking about their brokenness and past sin and then end their testimony with, oh, and then I trusted in Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Well, what happened then? Because I've heard all about your sin. In the Living Grounded that we're redoing, we're emphasizing people telling their stories, but we're emphasizing them telling their stories as an introduction to the main story. Our stories are not the main story. How many times have you heard people say, uh, and I, I never tell my testimony because it's really boring. I came to Christ when I was young. You know, I, I didn't spend any time in prison. That's a cool testimony there. Yeah, I didn't go through rehabs to get off of drugs. I didn't. I wasn't drunk every Saturday night, and then God saved me from it. There's a cool. There's some cool testimonies. We love stories themed, and they are cool testimonies. But we love stories themed with brokenness. And you know what we do? We live out the self-fulfilled prophecy. Oh, I'm just broken. Man, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner. And we live our life as a slump-shouldered Christian, beaten down by our brokenness, kind of like Eeyore, right? Isn't that, isn't that, what's a Christian look like? Eeyore. Oh, that's what I want to be. Sometimes we talk about more about what we were saved from than what we were saved to. Listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, people who live out these lifestyles with, with no intent of repentance. This is the life they've given themselves over to. Sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul could have gone on with the list. He has others, other sins in other lists. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this, and that is what some of you what? Were. That's what you were. You don't have to keep talking about that. You don't have to keep living like that. You don't have to bring that up in every testimony you have. That's what you were. We're not proud of what we were. We're proud of who we are. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have a spectacle has been made out of the enemy. Don't be on the enemy side. You're the victors. Live like a victor. Live like a child of God. See, you were broken. 
And we still sin. And we still fall back into that brokenness. But the more we talk about it, the more we focus on it, the more we're going to fall back into it. You were broken, but because of Christ and His work, you are redeemed. You are a child of the living God. Let's think about what that means as we wrap this up. Five things. We use the word safe with two S's. Number one, you are not broken anymore. You are redeemed. Jesus gave you the right to be a child of God. You are significant. You are significant. You never have to look for your significance in another person. You never have to look for your significance in what you do. You never have to look for your significance in your appearance. You never have to look for your significance in what you drive or where you live. Your significance as a child of God, if you are that, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is one who makes us significant. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's what? Handiwork. We are His workmanship. We are His masterpiece. And you say, yeah, but there are a lot of things in my past. Yeah, that's what you were. And God is sovereign. And He will use all those things in your past to weave the masterpiece that he wants you to be because from the foundation of the world, he knew you were going to be a child of God. And at some point in history of your life, he brought you to be a child of God. And he has never wasted a second of your time. You don't have to go around regretting your past. Live for the future. You are significant in who you are in Christ. No ER Christian anymore. You are, did I say ER or ER? That's why you didn't know what I was talking about. Eeyore Christian. No Eeyore Christian anymore. You're a child of God. Not only are you significant, but you are secure. Jesus says in John chapter 10, 27 through 30, jot this down. He says, my sheep know my voice. They listen to me. They follow me. And I give, I give them eternal life. And then he says this, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father, who's greater than all, Holds them in his hand as well. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I am secure in Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, you will never not be a child of God. Will you make mistakes along the way? You bet. But you will always be secure. If you have a child, husband and wife came together have a child. That is your child. You cannot reverse the biological process, right? That child may move someplace and not ever want to see you again. There are times when there may be some break in fellowship, but they will always be your child. And so it is with our spiritual rebirth. God says, you're not going to be perfect, but you're not broken. You're redeemed. You're my child and you are secure. I will always hold you in my hand and nothing will be able to separate you from me. You are accepted, significant, secure, accepted. You have been made a child of God. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he says, when the Spirit lives us, we can call out to God, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. You know what it means? Daddy. Think about that. You can approach the eternal God, the living God, and call him Daddy, that intimacy. You are accepted in his family, and you'll always be there. You always have a place at the table. You're never turned away. And God has made you, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, also an heir 
Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I have to go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll get you and I'll take you to that place. You not only have the abundant life of living as a child of God today, but you get to live in heaven forever as a child of the living God. You are significant, you are secure, you are accepted, and you are forgiven. Isn't it great to be forgiven? Man, the load lifted. Let me, let me give you these passages real quick. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he separated our sins from us. Isaiah 38, 17. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins where? Behind your back, out of sight. You don't see them anymore. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, who... Uh, and blo- and he who blots out your transgressions for my sake and remembers your sin no more. He got the eternal God, who is omniscient, chooses to remember our sin no more. Micah chapter seven, eighteen, nineteen. Who is God like you, who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You are forgiven. Significant, secure, accepted, forgiven, and one more, you are empowered. As soon as we trust in Christ, as soon as we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You have the power to live a life pleasing to God. We are sinners, and we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to sin, but we don't have to. We can allow the Holy Spirit to take control of our life. Will we ever live above sin? No. But we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus not on our brokenness, but God redeemed us. And when we sin, we're going to ask His forgiveness. We're going to confess it. We're going to talk to the people we sinned against as well. And then we're going to move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to live in the past. We have a great future that God has for us. All around you, in your neighborhood, this Christmas, at your workplace, at your school... There are people who feel very insignificant. There are people who are insecure and play out that insecurity in a lot of different ways. There are people who have never experienced acceptance at any level. There are people carrying around with them just a, a, a burden of unforgiveness, eating them alive. And there are people who are powerless. And we have the opportunity to truly live as children of the light. Children of God. That's who we are. And it's time as Christians we quit focusing on our brokenness. And realize as John tells us. You are a child of the living God. You are significant. You are secure. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are empowered. Now live like it and demonstrate to a watching world what it means to live as the victor, not as the defeated. To live unchained, not as the chained. To live forgiven, not as those burdened down by past stuff. Isn't that how you want to live? That's what we want to show to a watching world.